Rugby's different in so much as it has core values. At the RFU, we preach core values and we call them treads. And if I can remember them, it's uh, teamwork, respect, enjoyment, discipline, sportsmanship. And after the game, after the game and everybody had gone home and I was still there, and I went into the dressing room area and somebody said to me, Keith, come and have a look at this. And we went into the New Zealand dressing room and I was expecting to see mayhem. The New Zealand team had swept the dressing room. And I thought, wow, ain't that the most disciplined sport, bit of sportsmanship that you could ever, ever imagine? That the New Zealand world champions had just swept the dressing room. Hello, and I'm Chris Biddle. Welcome to episode 69 of Inside AgriTurf, and thanks for joining me. And for this next set of episodes, I'm going to focus on the turf element of Inside AgriTurf. And that was the voice you heard of my first guest, Keith Kent, someone who has scaled the heights of his profession. Keith has presided over the preparation of pitches for the English Premier League, England Football Internationals, England Rugby Internationals and the Rugby World Cup. Now Keith joined Leicester City as a grounds trainee from school and went on to become head groundsman at Manchester United. In 2002 he changed codes when taken on by the Rugby Football Union to take charge of the pitch at Twickenham, the home of English Rugby. Keith retired from Twickenham in 2019, since when he has continued his love of turf maintenance, but away from the spotlight. A superb ambassador for his profession and terrific communicator, Keith is never more at home than when passing on his experience to those responsible for the grass services at both professional and recreational clubs. Now this is a terrific episode with Keith opening up about the joy of turf management, weather watching, hosting an NFL game and his part in attracting the Rolling Stones to play Twickenham. So Keith, a very warm welcome. Uh, tell me, how are you finding this so-called retirement? Oh, <laughs> it's good. I think I had about a month or two off. I did have a little part-time job with Linemark UK up in Rottenstall and I've known Tony and Jan for 25 years and they asked me to be their ambassador and I said oh that sounds exciting what do I do so they said we want you to come out with us and meet and greet and shake hands and do talks well guess what you can't do during a lockdown (laughs) so that went by the way I was sat at home twiddling my thumbs and an old friend contacted me a guy called Chris Parry a really old friend of mine who's had a very distinguished career himself. He's been head groundsman of Leicester City. He's been head groundsman of Harlequins. And he's now head groundsman at Loughborough Grammar School. And he rang me and he said, we've got a few members off and this, that, and the other. Would you come and give me an hand? And I said, yeah, of course I will. Not a problem. I went for a fortnight. Two years later, bar for a few months here and there, I'm still there. And I'm absolutely loving it for a number of reasons. One, the I I have no, I don't dictate what we do. I don't go to meetings and I don't get emails, which is lovely. I get asked to go and cut six rugby pitches on a ride on mower. I will do that all day long for you, Chris. But I'm out at Quorn and Loughborough and it's rural Leicestershire. And I go in some mornings, I get in three quarters to an hour early we start at 7 30 i'm there at quarter to seven and i drive in and on, on occasions i see six cranes stood on the pitch yeah. i see a couple of buzzards i see pheasants running about the field it's just it's so far removed i'm finding it relaxing and Good. one of the one of the joys is the same and, and i didn't realize it until i, I weren't doing it Groundsmen get a kick out of people using their, using their pitches. That's why we do it. And I know we're miserable buggers and this, that, and the other, but on the whole, we want people to use our pitches. 
And the kids at Loughborough turn up and they, they during lockdown or during COVID, they'd arrive on a bus, 40 of them on a bus, and they'd all get off wearing masks. Hour and a half later, they were as happy as sandboys, not a mask to be seen, arms around each other, just getting on a bus, having had a great time playing on the field. So let's go back to the beginning then, then Keith. Did um, did uh, turf uh, choose you, or, or did you choose a, a career in turf turf care? I I chose it indirectly. My mum found me the job. I was when I was at school, I played in goal for the school and for the boys' club, and I always fancied myself as the next Peter Shilton or Gordon Banks because I'm from Leicester. Of course. And I had a trial, and I found out I was woefully short. I was short. And I, I was coming to my time at school to finish, and I was looking around for a job, and my mum came across an advert in the Leicester Mercury for a trainee groundsman at Leicester City Football Club. And she reasoned, if you can't play for them, why don't you go and work for them? And I started on June the 8th, 1970. And that was at Leicester. And how long were you at Leicester then? Um, I was there for 17 years. Were you? And this is all, all at Filbert Street or were there training grounds outside? I did a, a year at the training ground, Beaver Drive. And then I did seven years at Filbert Street as the assistant groundsman. Jimmy Bloomfield was the manager then. We had some fabulous players. We started off with Shilton, Frank Worthington, Keith Weller, that side, Alan Birchnell. Played some great football, but unfortunately never threatened winning anything. Got to one semi-final. And then uh, the head groundsman left. So they moved me to the training ground and bought the, the guy from the training ground, a lovely man called Jim Enshaw, to Filbert Street. So I looked after the training ground. And to be honest, I found that fantastic because we'd got about 13 acres and I was the only groundsman. And what I didn't do didn't get done. So you sort of learn to do things. And I became a much better groundsman by doing everything myself. And I looked after the dressing rooms and I did the tees on a match day because the A-team played there on a Saturday morning. And, And the training ground in them seven, eight years were my was my training ground and how did the so how did the uh step up to or step across to manchester united come about then i'd been at leicester for 17 years and uh, same as a lot of people in all walks of life i just began to feel as though i was being taken for granted i was doing more and more things that weren't really groundsman related i, I was I was looking after the buildings during the frost and the snow and taking ceiling tiles out and things like uh, And I wasn't enjoying it as much. And I saw a job advert, and it was a PO box in London. And I thought, do you know what? I'll go for it. So I wrote after this job, PO box in London, and thinking to myself, if it's Tottenham or Arsenal, I'm going. If it's if it's Wimbledon at that time, I'm not going. I, you know, I don't want to carry the ball off on a stretcher. And it came back and it was Manchester United. And I opened the letter and the air on the back of my neck stood on end. Because it was a complete, you know, it was a it was a dummy and a half. And I went up to Old Trafford for the day and I had a, a, an interview for about four hours with Ken Merritt, the then assistant secretary. And we got on really well. And and I just, you know, sometimes in life, Chris, you just know this is right. Uh, and it's, uh, this is Sir, Sir Alex's days, was it? Yes, Alex had, Sir Alex had been there 12 months. I got there in August 87. He'd got there in 86 November. So I followed him in. Yeah. yeah. And, and did immediately, um, presumably you got the job, because we know, but uh, did the stakes go up? because of the uh, attention, which is obviously from all over the world on Manchester United and Old Trafford? Yeah. Yeah, that was the biggest learning curve I had. You're okay being a groundsman because you know what you're talking about and and you've got people in the game, you've got reps and whatever, who you know or you know their companies and you know who you're dealing with. But all of a sudden, I've got microphones put under my nose from Manchester Radio, 
Piccadilly Radio, uh, people who were, who were just making a living out of doing interviews, ITV, BBC. And it was just never ending. Manchester Evening News interviewed me, did a photograph, blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden, you have to be careful that you don't become a celebrity because you're still the groundsman who was on Beaver Drive. Mm. And that's what I, I maintained. And United helped me. When I went, they said to me, Keith, don't go in a hotel. Don't go in a hotel while you find somewhere to live. We'll put you in digs with some young players. And they put me in digs near the cliff training ground with a Mrs. K. And she had got a young lad called Daniel Graham, had a couple of other lads. And it was like, it was like being at home. I, although I must say, <laughs> she, she wouldn't get up and make my breakfast because I was at work for eight o'clock. I used to have a bowl of cornflakes on my own. Yeah. And how long were you at, uh, at Old Trafford then, uh, Keith? 15 years. Yeah. I joined in 87 and I left in 2002. And the move, the last move into the RFU at Twickenham, how did that come about? Would you believe I was headhunted by the then director of the stadium, Richard Knight? Richard Knight, I met, he did a tour of big, big stadiums, Newcastle, Wembley, Liverpool. He went to all the big stadiums and he wanted to know because Twickenham was going to be developed, it was going to become a wrap round stadium. And he wanted to know how to look after a wrap round stadium. And it came with Jeff Perish. Can you remember Jeff Perish from the STRI? Yes. And I knew Jeff and Jeff introduced me. And I got on well with Richard. I, I wasn't looking for a job. I just told him how I did this, that, and the other. And a few months later, I got a call from a, a firm of headhunters saying that Twickenham wanted to interview me. And I thought about it, and I thought, well, my mum always taught me to be polite and, and courteous, so I'll go for the interview. And I went down there, and Richard Knight was charming, took me for a run round Richmond, showed me the pitch, blah, blah, blah. And I thought, you know what? I've been in football 32 years. Why not? Mm. And that's and, and one of the best things is I don't understand rugby. I'd hosted rugby at Old Trafford. We had England versus New Zealand, if you remember. And I, I'd played rugby briefly at school, four or five games. But the only rule I really understood is that you can't pass it forward. So it, it, I thought, I could do this because I'm never going to get wound up. I'm never going to shout at a referee and I'm never going to worry about who wins or loses because I don't understand it. All I know is my grass is being played on. And that's how I did it. But funny, a, a funny story, months later, somebody asked Richard Knight why he chose me. And it, it was a great fellow, Richard Knight. He said, well, we wanted one of the top three groundsmen in the country and they weren't available, so we went for Keith. <laughs> uh, and, and Keith, was there um, much difference between the pitch itself and your maintenance regime at Old Trafford, uh, at Twickenham rather, uh, compared with what you had at, at Old Trafford? Yeah, the, 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 the most striking difference was at the time, in 2002, the south stand was very, very small and had gaps either side, if you remember. And it got a lot of light. That was a big, big difference. And the other one was that the grass was longer. And, of course, and, and it's a daft statement, but you realise it when you're there, you're not worried about the roll of the ball because the ball doesn't roll. It's all played out of the hand. So the objective is, is to make sure that the players have good traction. So it was about having a dry pitch with a bit longer grass on. But as, as my job developed at Twickenham, and I began to understand more and more, I remember the England manager, Clive Woodward, I went to him and I said, what do you want, Clive? Tell me what you want. And he said, I want a firm, fast track. So I cut the grass. <laughs> <laughs> as yeah. simple as that we yeah. cut the grass yeah we went from something like three inches which is 75 millimeters down to 40 millimeters yeah and in the, and towards the spring not always in the six nations because it can be old 
that took Bar Bar's game in, in May and June, we were down to 25, sometimes 20 millimetres. Were you? It was, it was almost like playing football. It was that good. I talked to a, a head groundsman at a stadium some years ago, uh, which hosted both um, league football and um, top class rugby. And I was interested to know whether or not how, how long it took him to recover a pitch immediately after a game and, and, and which was the most challenging. And surprisingly, he said it was the football because of the sliding tackles and so on. Was that your experience? or I think, I think the thing is, is, is rugby is more unpredictable. It's random chaos that can have a scrum anywhere or a mall anywhere on the pitch. So there's no set pattern. You, in the olden days, the diamond of a football pitch used to wear out because that's where the play was. The two gold mountain up the middle. Football became more of a passing game with less tackling. Yes, there are more kicks, especially, I know this sounds, Manchester United could, first team could play and there'd be a few scars. If we had an FA Youth Cup tie, it was absolutely cut up to bits because the kids were flying in. Yes. Whereas rugby, it it really wasn't any different. Other than I must say, the ladies don't make as much mess because I don't think they have the weight. Uh, but rugby is is played very much on the feet these days compared to what it was, uh, say, forty years ago. Yeah. Uh, because the uh, the forwards pretend they're backs and the backs um, often whip in as as forwards. So it's a much more agile game than it was in the past. Yeah. Yeah. I, I must say, I got more. Positive feedback from rugby players. Football players are okay, but it's either too wet, too dry, too long. Uh, they're rather, rather particular. The rugby players appreciated that it was shorter, appreciated that it was firmer, because it was a match pitch. They weren't training on it, so it could tend to be that bit harder. Yeah. You know? Especially after we had had a Deso system in 2012. And... The rugby players used to love, and I'm not just saying that, they used to love coming to Twickenham. Uh, all the all the internationals did, and, and all the cup finals. And that was what was nice at Manchester United, and I'm not knocking it, it's fantastic to have it, to host the Premiership Games. And during my time, Wembley was closed, and we hosted England internationals and FA Cup semi-finals. Some fantastic games. To just be there, Tottenham versus Arsenal with the stadium cutting off, red one end, white the other end, is just fantastic. Uh, and did conditions uh, and, and management of the pitch improve after the South Stand was developed then? We, it was interesting because we developed the South Stand and Richard Knight was a man of vision and, and we sat for hours talking about what we thought was going to happen. We tried to predict the future. And I said to him, we, we, we had a five-a-sand pitch at the time, which had been put in in 2000. And we were now at 2010-11. And I said, we need, a, we need a new pitch for the World Cup. The World Cup was looming large in 2015. So he said to me, well, go and find the pitch you want, then come back and tell me and we'll talk about it. So Ian Aylin, my assistant, and I set off travelling the world. We went to Newcastle. We went to Dublin to have a look at the Aviva. We obviously, I knew Old Trafford. And I, and I spoke to people, and we came back, and we said we wanted a Deso pitch. And uh, Richard Knight said, OK, tell me where it is. And I said, Wembley. We'll go to Wembley. I knew Tony Stones, and we went to Wembley. We went to Arsenal. We went to Tottenham. And the pitches, we went to the Wembley in cup final week and the pitch looked like August. It was just incredible. And that is what I wanted. And he said, OK. And there's only there's only two companies at that time, John Hewitt's and John Mallinson's could provide them. Both companies are the best in the world, in my humble opinion. And there's only a, a cigarette paper between them. Both teams of men are just fantastic. They don't know when to go home. They get in hours before you. They ring you up at home at night and say, can you come and turn the lights on? And it's July. And they want the lights on till 12 o'clock because they're doing something. And it was just, it was an incredible experience to put a Deso pitch in 
with John Mallinson and his lads. Which I kind of brings me on to the sort of the big debate these days. And I think particularly in rugby, although it's it's coming into cricket a little bit, um, that is sort of artificial surfaces, hybrid surfaces or or natural grass. I, I know you've pumped for the, the hybrid, uh, but there are a number of um, premiership clubs in the rugby playing on artificial surfaces at the moment. Uh, have you personally got any views on the pros and cons? Yeah, I, I look at it for, from a, a... I played football at a, a lower level. I would not have liked to have played on a plastic pitch because of the burns, uh, because of the rubber crumb these days. And I, I don't think... I think it's an unnatural game, whether it be football or rugby, on an unnatural surface. I honestly believe that. That said, two things. One... We now have the technology, the hybrids, whether it be SIS or whether it be Deso or the new Grass Max that John Hewitt's got out, they are absolutely stunning, stunning pitches. You, you've, I sat and watched Match of the Day, and I just I don't know how they chose Tottenham as, as Pitch of the Year because, and I'm not, that's not a go at Tottenham, I'm just saying they are all so good. And Tottenham's look absolutely magnificent amongst 12 others. Yeah. I, my, my thing with artificial, and people go on about, yeah, but it's community and, and Maxfield Town went out of business and they've come back and they can do. I think as a training medium, you cannot beat artificial because you can do repetition after repetition after repetition and not wear it out. Whereas even on a hybrid pitch, after a while, you will start to show where. I think the ideal circumstances, I went to Mansfield Rugby Club a few years ago, and they had a 40 by 40 artificial at the back of their clubhouse and two main pitches, both fliddler on the front. And the pitches were in magnificent condition. And I said to them, what effect does the artificial? And they said, it's night and day. We do warm-ups on the artificial, both teams. And of a midweek, we do warm-ups on the artificial. And then we are allowed to go on the pitch and do gameplay. Well, me and you, Chris, won't make a mess playing and throwing a ball between us. I think that is the ideal scenario. Sure, sure. I, I do recall going with John Mallinson to witness Rugby League, and they were one of the first rugby clubs of any, either code to put a, an artificial perched down but the problem was however playable it was when any player got a, a knock or a strain it was always the pitch's fault yeah yeah um so so there is a bit of an image problem to it as well but uh, it has improved chris i mean if you yeah. think back to the qprs and the loops yeah. and the oldums of the old days it's 100 times better but so are natural pitches we only put artificial pitches in in the 80s because we couldn't maintain pitches no now no. you Honestly, I, I I watched match of the day. Uh, I didn't watch much last night because I've got to be up early this morning, but I thought West Ham's pitch looked absolutely phenomenal last night yeah. in the Man City game. Um, generally, how much um, instruction are you under from the, uh, from the managers uh, on how to prepare the pitch? Presumably it's not quite as, as critical as a cricket pitch and, and so on. Oh, no, thankfully. Thankfully <laughs> not. I think most managers, most managers, the only slight problem you may have in football is if, if the manager feels the grass is a bit long and the ball's slow. They like, I mean, nowadays the the water until kickoff and again at half time to, to fizz the ball about, which is which is great for them. I mean, with the water at half time, it's not for the health of the plant; it's so that the ball zips about. And during my time at Old Trafford, of course, we had wingers like Chelsea's. Ryan Giggs, and after I left, Ronaldo. So Manchester United like a slick pitch. Sir Alex was, he was okay. He, he just said, do your best, give me the best pitch you can. And if he felt sometimes that it was a bit slow, especially start of the season, August, September, and then again at this time of the year, he'd say, can you take it down a touch? But up north, you have to be wary in them days that, you know, you didn't take it down to 23 in November. Then you got a frost and you could never get it back up to 25. So it was 
It was horses for courses and the weather dictates everything you do. And, and do you get much uh, feedback from the players as to the to, to condition of the pitch? Sometimes, sometimes the players, the result, Chris, the, the players depend on the results. You know, if if we've won five nil, it's got nothing to do with the pitch. If we've lost one nil, it was my fault. So it's it's you just being groundsman. You have to grow a thick skin and take everything with a pinch of salt. You don't accept all the praise because tomorrow it's going to be criticism. So you just take day for day. Yeah. Now, as you said, Old Trafford was used for codes, both uh, rugby union, rugby league, and football. Um, Twickenham's never been used, as far as I know, for any other similar sport, has it? It's been used for the NFL. We had a, oh, oh, of course, I forgot. We had the NFL there, which was an experience, and a good experience. I enjoyed the NFL. I thought that the Americans, the groundsmen that came over were very, very professional, nice people to talk to, and we exchanged ideas and techniques, and, and it, it was really good. I felt that I learned a lot. My staff learned a lot. The game itself is absolutely crazy. I don't know how people watch it, to be honest. We had a game that lasted four hours and the ball was in play 14 minutes, apparently. But we did sell a lot of hot dogs. <laughs> as, as we all know, now today's sporting stadiums are multi-use. They're used yes. for all sorts of things, conferences and so on, and, and most importantly, concerts. Now, yeah. I do know, and everybody does know, that your love for a certain rock band from the 1960s, um, <laughs> uh, Rolling Stones, of course, um, it is said that you were instrumental in, in, in getting them to Twickenham. So, really, is that true? And, and secondly, what are the challenges that you find in when you have to, to uh, uh, convert the stadium to uh, hosting a load of people on the pitch? Uh, first off, I always enjoyed concerts especially if it was the rolling stones of course but i i've seen some great acts and the the week that the rock and roll are in is one of the most exciting weeks of the year it's it's so off course for what we're used to doing and if you do it right and and i've spoke to lots and lots of people lee up at man city especially about how they do it because they had they had something like eight concerts in ten days or something, and then play a football game four weeks later. I spoke to Carl at Wembley, and you just pinch ideas off one another. And I did this this year, and it seemed to work. And I did that, and we, and what you do is you meet the band, you meet whoever's building the stage, and you have a talk with him, and you lay down the law what you want. You don't want forklifts anywhere near the grass. You don't want cranes anywhere near the grass. If anybody's going on the grass, it's either got terraplast floor covering down or metalwork. And at Twickenham, we used to we used to weed kill the pitch and then let them have a concert on it. And it was the best week of the year that, to watch a stage go up from somebody coming out with one bit of scaffold and sticking it in the middle, and then they build a two-story stage from it, have a concert one night and it's gone the next night. It's just breathtaking yeah and there's some time frame footage sometimes of them putting it up which is oh. absolutely amazing isn't it and, and do you get to meet the band not very often no no they, they're just yeah they come and go the yeah. stones as you know everybody knows are my band yeah and i was i was very very lucky i did have a a role to play in bringing them into twickenham last time i was one of my favourite jobs on the RFU, I, I used to go out visiting community clubs. Um, I used to do four clubs a day, four days a week, and we'd have a couple of evening seminars. And Ian and Andy were fantastic. They looked after Old Trafford. We spoke on the phone every day, every morning while I was having my breakfast. And again, at the tea time when I, when I knew they were you know, about ready to wrap up. And I did a, a talk on Bodmin Moor. And there were about 40 guys turned up and it was in it was in March. It was something like minus three outside. It was perishing. And I was surprised 40 people turned up. And I used to do a talk and I used to put slides up on, on a dongle. And lots of people have never been to Twickenham. 
So I'd put pictures of the car parks, the marching bands, uh, the, the rooms, the hospitality, the, the, the bars. And I used to put up the, the bands and I put a picture of Mick Jagger up and I said, that's my hero. Put a picture of Keith up. That's, that's our Keith. Picture of the stage. This is the Rolling Stone stage. Boom. Picture of the floor in with the seats on or without the seats, blah, blah, blah. And just to give people an insight as to what else we did. I mean, at that time, I also had a picture of the Jehovah's Witness. You know, people were amazed that we had the Jehovah's Witnesses, but they never went on the pitch. And it was it was a great weekend. Little did I know that was in the March. In the in the May, we played the London Sevens. And I got a, an email from some guy in, in Devon saying, I'm coming up to the Sevens. My boy's bringing his best mate, whose mum works for the Rolling Stones organisation. Would you like a poster? <laughs> and the Stones had just played South America. If you remember, they played uh, in Cuba on Good Friday, which didn't go down well with the Pope, but Keith Richards says the Pope don't pay me. So <laughs> I met this guy and, his, and the lads, and I took them on the pitch and made a fuss of them because they're really nice people, and I got a, a poster from Mexico. The following year, 17, uh, this, I got this lady's email address and wrote to her and thanked her. The uh, Chiefs got to the final, and she was coming up, and she wrote to me and said, can I meet you, Keith? Put a face to the name. I said, I'd love to meet you, Liz. Everything was arranged, and then there was some trouble in London with terrorism and everything became locked down and it was it was harder to get in. And I never saw her before the game. I met her after the game. And she said, if you want to come to Europe, come to Europe and I'll get you in. So I'll thank you. I didn't get to Europe. And then I was in a meeting. I was I was voted onto the rock and roll committee and, and the ticket office manager said, next year we've got an act coming in and they're going to play Saturday and Sunday. And I said, it's not the Stones then. And he said, how do you know that? I said, because Mick can't sing two nights on the trot now because of his voice. So he said, no, we wrote to the Stones, wrote to the management, wrote to everybody. We can't get to them. So I said, I've got a way in. So <laughs> to cut a long story short, the ticket office manager, my director and myself went to Paris to see the Rolling Stones in the U2 arena. And we met with all the Rolling Stones management and we managed to get the Rolling Stones into the Twickenham the next year. Brilliant. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, what a, what a story. Uh, Keith, coming, coming back to turf care, um, what, do, what do you think is the most important piece of uh, turf care kit or techniques to have been developed since you've been in the game? I would say that there's there's a there's a number, but my number one that is pretty much available to everybody in some form is the Vertitrain, yeah, the aerator. That changed everything. For four hundred pound, you can have your pitch spiked if you don't own one yourself, and you can put an old up to twelve inches deep, four inches apart, with a little bit of eave and you can transform your pitch. In the worst soil conditions, you can make a difference as long as you can get on it. That's the secret. You've got to be able to right weather conditions to get on. It's no good waiting until it's raining and then saying we'll get the spiker out because you're not going to get on it. And if you do, you're going to get stalked. So it's management in your own head, management watching the weather, but the aeration. I mean, my nickname's Aeration Keith. Yes, I see. Yeah. So, so I mean, aeration and drainage is so important. The problem is, Keith, is that so much of what you do is not like cutting a hedge. We say, oh, well, that's a nicely cut hedge. So much of what you do is actually unseen, isn't yeah. it? The, the, it, it? It's really not visual, and it's only really manifest in the, in the quality of the pitch, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. In, in my lifetime, I would say number number one would be the – Thirty drain. Number two would be the field top maker, yeah, which takes all the vegetation off and you start from scratch every year. Now, not every club can afford to do that. 
community clubs would struggle with doing that because of irrigation if there were to it's a dry spell. So, but at the professional level, the Toro, the, the Coro is next to the aerator. Yeah. And then the really big game changer that changed everything for wraparound stadiums of Old Trafford, Wembley, Newcastle, to a lesser extent, the lights of Liverpool was the lighting rigs. Yeah. Who ever saw them coming? Certainly not me in 2002 when I left Old Trafford. One of the most vivid uh, demonstrations was actually at Lords. Um, John Mallinson had uh, repaired the, or replaced the outfield at Lords from the old London clay, and yeah. over the winter, Lords looked like a Siberian minefield with just a bit of green in the middle where the sun. And the guy from the SDRs, I said to me when I went there, he said, "One of these days, you're going to see something that's going to knock your socks off." And um, and and that was 2002. Yeah. In 2007, I was going to a, a day at the test match and um, Lords had had something like two inches of rain in a couple of hours, hour and a half in the morning. Yeah. And uh, the place was flooded, absolutely flooded. Some friends of mine who were actually at the ground, I, they phoned me and they were on the way back home and I passed them and they were playing by lunchtime. It yeah. was absolutely extraordinary, and it was a vivid, uh, it was a vivid demonstration of, of of good drainage and what that could do. John Mallinson put a Deso system in there, didn't he? He did. I, I and John Mallinson did me, and I said to him, I said, John, what what will it drain at? And he and he smiled and he said, Well, when it's brand new, five inches of rain an hour. Mm. And if we ever got five inches of rain an hour in London, I don't think anybody would be bothered about a rugby game. No, no. Because the, the place would be flooded. But I'd have been happy because I'd have had a green grass. I might have been even mowing it. <laughs> and 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 that your time at Twickenham particularly, what's been the most memorable game or occasion for you? I think hosting the 2015 Rugby World Cup. It was it was a long time coming and, and I was lucky. I, I managed and I said to Ian and Andy and I said to all the staff. It's going to be a long time coming. When it gets here, stop and breathe it in. I'd done Euro 96 at Old Trafford with Tony Sinclair. And we hosted five games of football. And in three weeks, it was over. And it took years to get to us, and it was gone. And I don't think I really had time to enjoy it because I was so busy worrying about the next game and the next game. I decided in my own head that 2015, I was going to enjoy it. And I made sure everybody else enjoyed it. And we'd put a pitch in in 2012, and we'd learned how to look after it. We learned how to keep the nutrient levels up. We knew when to aerate it. It was a learning curve for three years. And I went into the World Cup with Ian and Andy, and we were ready. We, we hosted 10 sell-out games at Twickenham in six weeks. And they were the best the best games I've ever seen. I've got we, – we, we were spoiled. We were sat on the halfway line so we could get on the pitch in case of. And the two semifinals, we played two semifinals, one on the Saturday, one on the Sunday. And they were fantastic games. Fantastic games. Argentina played Australia. South Africa played New Zealand. I mean, it's just top, top quality. You can't, you couldn't buy a ticket for it. It was, and I was in. <laughs> and then on the cup final day itself, I think it was the best day of my working life ever. We got in and we had a couple of assistants, had a couple of my pitcher, volunteer pitch advisors with us. And the guy from Carnival Vaughan, that had been turned into a car park, so he'd got no grass to look after. So he asked if he could come and help me look after my grass. And, and on the cup final day, there were eight of us, of which four of us were full-time and the rest were volunteers. And we cut the pitch five times. We ironed that patterning. We ironed it. And although I say it myself, it looked as good at game 10 as it did game one. The day was, it was October the 31st. The temperature was plus 17. 
the sun was out. In the crowd, we had three princes, Harry, William, and the late Duke of Edinburgh. The red arrows did us fly past. I mean, it was just, wait, you know, be milk Scotty, I'm ready. <laughs> it was incredible. And the game was magnificent. The game was outstanding. And, and, and was for the World Cup, was the preparation of the pitch uh, down to the RFU or was, uh, was there a wider uh, body at, at work, rather like uh, the Olympics? Uh, any, uh, any venues are turned over to the uh, International Olympic Committee, um, but it, it, you were still under the RFU, were you? Uh, no, we were under World Rugby. World Rugby, I think, dictated what pattern we'd put down and we put the pattern down and we stuck to it. And we were lucky. One of the things I did not like was logos. I know it's a big thing in rugby and rugby league, but from a groundsman's point of view, they're an absolute nightmare, especially in wintertime when you can't grow them out and you wash them out and they wash onto the soil and they're there for years. When John Mountain used the Coro after the season, we could still read the logos, but that's by the by. So the World Cup never had a logo on the pitch. Uh, and it was just... It was one of those days we were in at something daft o'clock in the morning. Um, the game was magnificent, refereed by the little Welshman who was the best referee in the world at the time. Yeah. And the, one of the best stories, and, and rugby's, rugby's different in so much as it has core values. At the RFU, we preach core values, and we call them treads. And if I can remember them, it's uh, teamwork, respect, enjoyment, discipline, sportsmanship. And after the game, after the game and everybody had gone home and I was still there, and I went into the dressing room area and somebody said to me, Keith, come and have a look at this. And we went into the New Zealand dressing room and I was expecting to see mayhem. The New Zealand team had swept the dressing room. Really? Yes. And I thought, wow, ain't that the most disciplined sport, bit of sportsmanship that you could ever, ever imagine? That the New Zealand world champions had just swept the dressing room. That's extraordinary. That's and extraordinary. So, Keith, after your, your long career, um, is your skill set looking after rugby and, uh, and, and football, is it transferable to other sports? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think other disciplines have other habits and, you know, green keepers get in, crack a dawn and go home at two o'clock and this, that, that. <laughs> I think that the skill sets of knowing how to set a mower, knowing how to use a mower, knowing how to walk in a straight line, fertiliser, chemicals, health and safety. I think after a little while, I think I could do it. You know, I, I, I'm at this school and and I'm learning about cricket. I've actually bought three cricket squares out in now. I've only been there two years. So I've done three wickets. And, and I'm enjoying watching. And I ask questions. I'm like a kid. I'm like being 17 again. Why are you doing that? Why didn't you do that yesterday? And, and, and I'm learning all the time. And I think that is what keeps, one, keeps me going. But I think that's what keeps groundsmen young, is we are never, ever satisfied. We want better. One of the important aspects is, is comparing notes with fellow uh, groundsmen, yes, yeah. fellow professionals, uh, and presumably learning off each other, Keith. Yes, yeah, very much so, very much so. I I, I went up to Bega this year uh, because I've been doing a bit of training on behalf of Lantra, a company called Martin Sampson Training. It's funny because... It's, History repeats itself. In 1999, a bunch of us went to Aston Villa. Uh, Darren Baldwin from Spurs, Stevie Patrick from Blackburn, Alan Ferguson from Ipswich, Dave Roberts from Southampton at the time. And they taught us something called train the trainer. And the, we became teachers. And we can teach level one groundsmanship. And I really enjoyed that. And I, go, I enjoy going out and teaching people. Of course, when I went to the RFU, I didn't do as much as that because it was a football-orientated one. But I went out to a fair few clubs up in the northwest in football, 
And then I let it lapse a little when I was at the RFU, but I was still doing teaching, but not as a day course. I was teaching in a seminar, rather. And when they, when they said, do you fancy doing it again? I've been out twice, and I went to a school in Nottingham and taught some lads, and I went to a school in Wolverhampton and taught some lads. And I'm really enjoying it. And I, and I enjoy passing on my knowledge. And, and it ain't all about, you know, I, I go out on a line marking course and end up discussing aeration. And, and I think that becomes because I don't, not being big at it, but I have a knowledge of, of aeration and what it does and why we do it and when you do it. And guys sort of pick up on that I'm keen to help. So a line marking course could encompass anything. But hopefully by the time they're done, they know how to mark anything out as well. Uh, Keith, it's often I often consider that groundsmen, greenkeepers and those that work in, in turf are all like farmers. Uh, they've got a nouse for, for the weather conditions, yeah. the climate, um, something that they can't get off an app or a, a computer and so on. Is that true, do you think? Yes, definitely. Definitely. I think a groundsman can read the weather. We do look at apps. When I was at Twickenham, I was lucky enough to have a contract with John Ketley. John Ketley is the weatherman. And I built up a really good rapport with John, who I, I, I was fantastic. And John would sometimes, he, he rang me one day and he said, he says, Keith, there's heavy rain coming in. We were playing France the next day. And this was pre the John Mallinson pitch. He said, we've got about 15 millimetres of rain coming. And this was Friday afternoon going into Saturday morning. So Ian and I stayed and we spiked the pitch. And we got in the next morning and all the spike holes were full of water. And the pitch was playable by kickoff. But if he hadn't to give us the heads up, we may not have spiked it. That it was so, we knew there was some rain, but we didn't realise there were 15 mil on its way. And another time he rang, he rang me and he said, you're going to get snow within the next hour. And I started to put the pitch cover on with Nigel Felton's team. And Ian was in town shopping for Christmas. And he rang me and he said, Keith, it's snowing in town. <laughs> <laughs> it was incredible. But I think we do watch everything. We watch Countryfile. Countryfile is a must. You watch Countryfile to see what, because by Saturday, it could be too late to do anything. It, if it's chucking it down with rain on a Friday, do your work Thursday. Do the aeration Thursday so that you can sit on the Friday watching it rain in the knowledge that it's full of holes. It was always fascinating to watch uh, Mick Hunt at Lords um, when when weather was threatening and uh, you could see him weighing it up. And I guess he had all the apps in the world, but it would be he that would make the decision yes. on whether to, to, to bring the covers in, whatever the forecast said. Yes. Well, I was lucky enough in Manchester to be good friends with Peter Marron, yes. the late great uh, Peter Marron, who was yeah, a super fabulous guy. man, lovely guy. And, and him and I, sometimes over a, a sherbet, would discuss the weather. And I talked to him about pulling covers on and this, that and the other. And he used to, he used to say he'd stand in the middle and watch the clouds or watch the sky. And, and he used to say, well, I can't do that because I'm wrapped around the stadium. But he, he almost... He had a sixth sense when he when the lads were going to have to pull the covers off. Yeah, but a super guy. Yeah, rather like farmers. So Keith, look, it's terrific to catch up. When uh, looking back, and apart from the obvious practical rewards that you've got from your job, what was the greatest satisfaction that you've had out of your career? One in the first instance, making my mum and dad proud. That you know that goes a long way. Helping people, teaching people, that gives me a lot of satisfaction. And I put the television on a look at Old Trafford and Tony Sinclair, who I took on as a YTS boy when he was 16. He's now been there over 30 years and he's head groundsman. I took him on and I'm so proud of him and Joe Pemberton, who's at Carrington, who I took on just as his YTS finished. And I think you get pride in looking at people who, are, who I mean, Old Trafford's out of this world. And I think to myself, I helped Tony to do that. I, I get Tony, you know, the first step on the ladder. 
And that makes me very, very proud. That's what I get out of it. And is there, um, when you step out for work, when, and whether it was your days at Old Trafford or Twickenham or even now, is there a sort of motto that you've got uh, hanging on the back of the loo door or anything that, that sort of guides you through the day? I, I have I have three things that I always did. One is aeration. Aeration, aeration, aeration. The other one is when you get to work, get in and get it done. Don't meander don't do this that and the other if you've got a job to do get it done and never put off till tomorrow what can be done today i know it's an old one but in our job if you leave the mowing or the spiking the weather could change the conditions of the pitch could change the manager could decide to train there there's so many things that could go wrong if you've got the chance to do it do it there and then and don't go it's funny, I started at Loughborough Grammar School and I was mowing the field and we finished early on a Friday and I still got a pitch to mow. And the lads come around and says, Keith, we go home at quarter past four. And I says, I'm not, I'm going to stay and finish this off. And they said, oh, will you lock up? I said, yeah, leave me to it, I'll lock up. And on the Monday, they said to me, we knew you won't come in. We knew it because you're not that sort of bloke. <laughs> which was nice that's terrific and i do know lastly um your one of your leaving presents from twickenham was a a prize uh devoted to, to go to new york uh with yes. british airways uh, for a concert so keith which is your favorite rolling stones either track or, or album i think album uh exile on main street i thought you'd say that and my favourite track of all time, when they do it live, is Midnight Rambler. Well, I, uh, for my sins, used to run a mobile disco, and I had one killer track on that always got everything going, and that was Brown Sugar, yeah. which I, I think is one of the greatest rock and roll records ever made. But uh, Some of the best three minutes of your life. Absolutely <laughs> right. Well, look, Keith, it's great to catch up, and, and um, thank you so much for that wonderful trawl through through a fascinating career, uh, which is ongoing. We're never, none of us uh, too late to learn, and we're always no. learning, aren't we? Yes, we are, yeah. Okay, Keith, well, many thanks, and thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you. Great to see you, Chris. Thank you. I've nothing more to add after that barnstorming account of a career well-lived and which is far from over. It is clear that Keith has still much to offer his profession. I actually ran out of time to ask him about the challenges faced by those preparing playing surfaces for the recreational game and plan to have him on again to talk about that and other matters. The next episode, I'm going to be joined by Jimmy Broadhouse, a.k.a. Jimmy the Mower, who has established himself as an important turf influencer after a post on social media went viral and set off an extraordinary chain of events. That sounds also to be a most interesting tale. So, I'm Chris Biddle. Thank you for joining me. And this is inside Agritove.